We are live on YouTube, Facebook, and audio on your favorite podcast platforms. If you're interested in public health, then this is the space for you. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to True Health Live. I'm Deja Sully. I'm joined by one of my awesome co-hosts, Anishka, and our special guest co-host today, Warrior Megzi. Hello! <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Megzi. We are so excited to hear your story. For those of you who um, did catch last I don't even think it was two storms ago. No, it wasn't. There was like a gap. There was something else in between. But if you did catch our um, our special on breast cancer awareness, this is our follow-up, our part two. Um, and we're joined by a breast cancer survivor, Megan Claire Megzi, who about her story. Um, you know, Anushka and I really had like a really nice organic conversation about breast cancer awareness. And, and we, as always, we always go into that space where we talk about how important it is to advocate for yourself. And, you know, the best information to get, you know, especially in public health, we always talk about things being evidence-based, right? Mm -hmm. So evidence-based also means, you know, um, empirical, like what we can observe with the eye, um, and also like getting it from the source. And so today, Megzi, you're our source. So what we want to do is, you know, not only have information coming from the two of us, but someone who has actually experienced um, the journey of breast cancer survivorship, and then advocating and talking to other patients and other women, you know, and sharing your story. So I'm just going to like open up the floor to you and you tell us, you know, what was your journey like? You know, how, what were the ways you had to advocate for yourself? You know, some examples of how you did that and how you would um, suggest that other women do that, whether they're uh, family members, caretakers, or patients themselves. Well, it turns out I had to advocate for myself even before I got the actual cancer diagnosis. Um, so it took about two, two and a half years before um, I actually got the diagnosis, but I was having so many insane um, symptoms and issues and something that my, my Nana always taught our whole family. She was a registered nurse. She was like, you need to know your body and it's okay to get pushy. And so um, I started experiencing really strange symptoms um, back in, gosh, I guess, yeah, it's, it's been a hot minute. I mean, I got the diagnosis in 2015, but prior to that, I was able to get a mammogram at 35, um, you know, because we know the mammogram age is 40, which they seriously need to like lower that. Um, but the only reason why I was able to get one at 35 is because my mother is an ovarian cancer survivor and there's a link between breast and ovarian. And so that's why I was able to get a preventative mammogram, right? So I get it. They tell me I'm clear. They're like, come back when you're 40. I'm like, okay, fabulous. Well, then about a few months after that mammogram is when things started to kind of go south. Um, all of a sudden, I gained a bunch of weight. And I was always a very fit uh, person growing up as a ballet dancer, as a musical theater dancer, like I was just very fit and strong. All of a sudden, I'm like, what is this? And then um, my hair 
which used to be bone straight into my shoulders, not these chemo curls that seem to be permanent, um, started falling out on the left side. And I remember my, my stylist said, are you missing a nutrient? Because she had been doing my hair for like 13 years at that point. And she was like, why is it so dry? Why is it so brittle? And I actually had to chop my hair off. I mean, I was like devastated. And so I kept going to the doctor and I'm like, something is wrong. And they were run blood tests and all of this. And they kept saying, yeah, we can't find anything. You're normal. I'm just like, yeah, no. Uh, and then I started getting even uh, more strange symptoms, tiny green bruises on my lower left leg. And, you know, then I'm like, oh, my God, I've got to have leukemia. Like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, like, rationalize this. So I call again. I go to the doctor again. And they're like, OK, you're anemic, but not enough for that. Yeah, we still don't know what's going on. I'm just like. I do not accept this answer because <laughs> I know something's wrong. Um, and again, this is over like a two year, two and a half year period here of just constantly going to the doctor. And then um, my nails got brittle and started falling off, you know, so I went to get my thyroid checked. That was normal. And I'm just like, okay, I'm trying to like, you know, be like, okay, I've gone through this and that trying to figure out what is happening. And finally, at this point, I go back to the doctor and I had a circular green bruise on the back of my upper left arm. And so by this point, my primary is like, your body is trying to tell us something, but we have no idea what it's trying to tell us. So come back in two weeks. And I'm like, okay. But with that whole weight gain means I got big boobs. And I was always feeling those suckers because I never had like big breasts. And it just happened to be, and I, I, tell this all the time. Like I used to love the show Supergirl and this is when it was like first coming on. It was like that first season or whatever. And so I was like, let me take a shower so I could be like already from a Supergirl episode. And I get in the shower and I'm telling you this mass, I knew it was not a lump. It was a mass came out of nowhere. I mean, it was not there the night before or that morning. Um, and I was like, what is this? And I did not connect the dots to think breast or anything else. I just knew that sucker was huge and it was so hard. It was like hard as a rock. And I was like, okay, well, that's really strange. And because it was like kind of over like near under my arm. So I just didn't really connect it to breast. So I remember I called the next day. And again, this is how I was already advocating for myself without even attaching that word to it. Um, so, you know, the scheduler is like, yeah, you are, are coming back in two weeks. I'm like, no, I need to talk to someone now. Cause I could just hear my Nana saying, get pushy, get pushy. You need answers and not shy away from that. And so finally I get the PA and, um, I tell her that I'm feeling something weird and she was like, okay, let me go find your, um, your primary care doctor. She's in with another patient, but she'll call you back. I'm like, cool. She calls me back in like 10 minutes and she goes, I've written an order for you to get a diagnostic mammogram. And I'm thinking to myself, didn't I just have one of those at 35? Like totally, I'm hearing this different terminology. But again, I was not phased. Like I was not even freaking out yet because I'm like, well, finally, I mean, I knew something was not right. So we go, and I don't know if there are any fans of Grey's Anatomy, but um, the, uh, radiation oncologist, um, or radiology. Actually, I don't even know what her actual title was, but anywho, 
uh, she's the one that did my biopsy and her name was Dr. Gray. And I just laughed because she looked like she was 12. Um, and she assured me that she had graduated from medical school. Cause I was like, you look 12. Um, <laughs> but anyway, she told me it was a mass. So again, I was not surprised by that. I was like, well, obviously this thing is huge and hard as a rock. So again, it was once we, um, I had the biopsy. That's when I started to freak out a little bit. Um, and I knew she saw something because she told me she was only going to take like eight to 10 tissue samples. And she took almost 20 because I was counting. Um, and even though like they numbed me up and I didn't feel anything to this day, if I hear a loud staple gun, that's what it sounded like pulling the tissue out. So it's like, I get very triggered. Don't get me in Home Depot. Okay. Um, or Lowe's. Um, and so that was a Friday and I distinctly remember this date and that was a Friday because it happened to fall on 9-11, 2015. And so, and it was the last appointment of the day. So this is like 4.30. So I said, when will I get the results? They're like, oh, you probably won't get anything um, until like, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm like, okay. So I go back to work on Monday, not thinking anything because they said Tuesday or Wednesday, I'm in my cubicle. Um, at this point I was working in radio and so I'm always aware of the time. And, um, I was just listening to a commercial and my phone rang and I noticed the time said 3.05 PM. And you know, that, that feeling where you're like, I don't know who this caller is, but then your gut's telling you, I think I should answer this call. That's what happened. Cause I was like, I don't know who this is. Call. It was Dr. Gray. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. Um, and so this is back when I could run. <laughs> and ran down the hall into an empty conference room. She goes, Megan Claire, you have invasive lobular breast cancer. And I was just like, I have what? Like, and then, then the hysterics, like I could feel myself starting to get hysterical because at that point I wasn't focused on the lobular. I was just focused on the breast cancer part. Um, and she calmed me down. I mean, she said, look, I need you to get a pen and paper. I need you to um, give you some information like right now. And that just like snapped me back. I'm like, okay. And I'm a dramatic person. So everything I do is very big. And so I'm racing back to the cubicle. No one's like, um, professionally, um, I go by MC. And they're like, MC, what are you doing? I'm like, yeah, in a minute. And so I'm getting all this information. She had already talked with my primary care provider. So I got like the name of the, two names for the oncologist, uh, plastic surgeon, um, radiation oncologist. Um, and, and I'm thinking to myself, what, what do I need a plastic surgeon for? Like it didn't even connect. And so after that, I immediately called my mother. And of course my mother at this point felt such guilt because of her being an ovarian cancer survivor. I often joke, I look nothing like her externally, but internally we're identical. Um, and I'd really rather look like her externally and not be like her internally. Um, so she felt a lot of guilt uh, with that because uh, that's just obviously something happened and it somehow mutated into breast because I was on the path to potentially getting ovarian or cervical. Like that's where all my issues were. Um, so really at that point, it's, you know, meeting my medical team and I absolutely adored my breast cancer surgeon. Um, because I bring a lot of humor into things. And I remember when she first walked in, my mother and I were like cracking up over something. She's like, finally a patient that doesn't act like they're dead. And that just like had me rolling because that's 
how, you know, that's what I like. I like someone that has a personality, but, you know, as I went through uh, the treatments that were so difficult, it was really hard to advocate for myself um, professionally at work um, because I found out at work, there was no time for me to even like process and figure out a way to tell, you know, my bosses at that time. Cause it was like all over my face and they're like, are you okay? And I immediately had to say something. Um, but it was hard because due to a technicality with insurance, I was not eligible for short-term disability. And I was like, how am I going to work and do chemo? You know, like I was really, um, that really stressed me out. And to this day, I will always regret not being able to take the time I needed to go through 16 rounds of chemo um, because I literally worked until I could not, until I could no longer walk. Like I got so weak. Um, I was on this wheelchair bound. I was using a cane. Um, I mean, the chemo just knocked me flat out and I had like every side effect at the same time. Um, and so, you know, it was those moments when I walked into that infusion room and I'm like the youngest person in there. Everyone else is like, and they're like, you know, probably seventies and eighties. And I'm thinking, what am I doing in here? Um, but fortunately I did have a fabulous, um, infusion nurse again, that humor. And I don't, I'm probably dating myself with this here, but, um, that movie, a league of their own. And there's one line in there there's no crying in baseball, right? Um, so I remember my infusion nurse, when I first walked in there, that's when it was like really hit me. This is real. Like, oh my God, I'm about to get like poison in me. And I started to like cry. She was like, ah, there's no crying in the infusion room. And that just like made me laugh. I was like, okay. Um, so I feel like I was really taken care of during active treatment. When I it was once I got to that so-called survivorship stage is when I had to really advocate for myself. And I had never really put it in those terms before um, diagnosis, but after it was hard. I ultimately divorced my active treatment oncologist and I straight up told her to her face, no less, I'm divorcing you. And it was the hardest thing I'd ever have to do. Um, Cause I'm not married. I don't know, but, Darn it, I'm sure divorces hurt. And it just felt, it just crushed me because I felt like she brought me so far and now she wasn't listening to me. Um, I ended up with the rare side effects from a lot of the post-treatment medications to help prevent a recurrence. And, um, and I was like, I can't take this medicine for 10 years. And that was the treatment plan, 10 years, because I was diagnosed under 40, which means I'm an adolescent and young adult cancer patient and now survivor. And I was like, I can't be on this for 10 years. It was debilitating. And so she was like, yeah, just get off it for two weeks and then take it again. And I was like, it was really that time where I had to really be vocal. And, and I'm a pretty like vocal person. I'm not shy, but when you're sitting on that exam room table in a little gown, you feel really small and it's really hard to find your voice. But darn it, I realized uh-uh, this is my body that we're talking about here. I can't take this medication, period. 
And so I was really mad that she wasn't listening to me. So then I all of a sudden become a chemist. Like I'm looking up ingredients because I'm thinking maybe it's just like a particular ingredient that's just not, you know, working with my system. So I found like another one in the same class and I like go bring it to her. And I'm like, hey, here's this other one. It's in the same class as the first one, but some of the ingredients are slightly different. So maybe I can tolerate it better. And I'm thinking in my head, when did, when did that happen? Like, I sound like I know what I'm talking about. Um, and I tried that medication and unfortunately had the exact same severe reactions. And at that point, I was just like, you know what? I've got to divorce you and find an oncologist who will listen to me. And she actually, she looked at me and she was like, I'm impressed that you had the courage to say that to my face. No apology. No, I should do better and listen to patients. None of that. Uh, I don't know if race was a factor in that. Who knows? But I was proud of myself and I really hope, you know, I was worried for other patients under her that had entered that survivorship stage. But I went and found another one um, at another uh, cancer center because I'm in Atlanta. Probably forgot to say that I'm in Atlanta. And this guy, he walks in. He was like, we have to think outside of the box for you. And I just started crying because I was like, finally, someone sees it because, I mean, I am extra but it's like, I did not want to be extra in the breast cancer space. Okay. Like, why couldn't I just be normal and have the normal symptoms or whatever? Um, and so in doing that, we tried some other, um, you know, treatments. And again, like my body was just like, absolutely not. And he goes, okay, our next step is, he goes, and I hate to do this. And he actually started crying y'all. Um, I had to lose my fertility completely because the only other medications that would be available for post-treatment since I was allergic or intolerant of the ones uh, that I already tried, they needed to push me into menopause, like full on menopause. Now I do not have any human children. I do have a cat who may pop up over here shortly. His name is Nathan, um, Nathan Edgar, but I don't have any human children. And like, he got really upset because he was like, I don't want to do this to you. Like he tried to avoid that, which really let me know that he saw me as an individual patient. You know, I was not a number to him. And when I, you know, he ultimately talked with my gynecologist and it really made me feel good that they were a team. Like they, they spoke to me uh, together and they said, we hate to do this, but the fact that you are already on the path, especially after genetic testing, on the path to get a variant or cervical, at least if we surgically move you into menopause, we can negate you getting any of these 5 million other cancers. And I was like, do what you got to do because I cannot go through this again. But I wasn't thinking about the emotional uh, ramifications of that. I was just like, get it out. I can't do it. So then that happens. And it was that moment when we tried more medications. And again, I was having like the rare side effects of everything. And that's when it started to hit me. Dang, clinical trials. They do not have people that look like me on these clinical trials because I'm having every single rare side effect and that should not be happening. And by this point, and I applaud any doctor that can tell a patient, you know what, you're outside of my expertise. I would like you to go to a colleague at a competing cancer center 
to observe because I don't know what else to do for you because I've never experienced a patient like you. And I'm just like, dang, again, I got to go and be extra. Um, So I go, I meet this um, other oncologist and she said, you know, there are just some women and maybe some men whose bodies just absolutely cannot tolerate any of the medications that are supposed to help prevent a recurrence. And I said, wait a minute. So you mean I'm going to be on nothing? Like, what do you mean I'm going to be on nothing? Um, That was very scary. Um, And then, you know, I'm done. I got no lady parts. Turns out I had endometriosis and it turns out I never would have been able to have children anyway, which was also very devastating. And what upset me afterwards is no one actually told me, hey, maybe you should get some therapy because this is actually going to be a lot, this is going to be bigger than you're thinking. Cause I'm all like, I'm just thinking of the surgery and I have like just these tiny little five scars. It didn't look like that big a deal, but apparently it was a big deal. Uh, my insides literally had to shift because there was so much room now and it was very painful, but you know, moving on now in the survivorship stage, like big time where I'm on no medication to help prevent recurrence, I kept getting sick and I'm just like, what is going on? So again, I'm on the hunt to try and figure out now what is going on with this body. Cause I don't know this post-cancer body anymore. You know, I don't know what's supposed to be, I hate that term new normal. So I just want to say maybe routine for it anymore. And so I had what is called fat necrosis, which is like the the dead fat that can build in an area when something is taken out of your body. Well, it turns out it decided to grow right in the area where my tumor was. So when I realized it wasn't going away and the sucker seemed to be growing and I'm like, oh my God, they didn't take all of the, the cancer. Like what is happening? But by this point I had to get radiation. So they were like, just keep massaging it. I get radiation, y'all, 33 treatments for radiation. I burnt like crispy bacon. I mean, like, I legit know what a burn victim feels like because underneath my arm, I my skin burned off. And I remember my radiation oncologist goes, oh, yeah, I've seen worse. And when she said that to me, I legit had a full-on meltdown because I was like, I can't, I can't make it through, through these treatments. And I told her, I said, you may have seen worse, but have you ever gone through radiation? Like I just got so livid at how she just dismissed my experience. And I was like, I legit, my flesh is burned off. Like, oh, it it was so upsetting. Um, that was a moment. That was another moment, a key moment for me where I was like, wow, talk about like being dismissed. What is she like with other patients? Um, so I somehow did manage to finish all 33 and it was a chore. It was hard. Um, a lot of people say, Oh, keep, you know, radiation's a breeze, you know, and I'm like, it was not a breeze for me. Um, it was just as hard to get through as chemo. And, uh, and I burned up the side of my neck and through my back. I mean, I'm like, why is no one else burning? Why am I burning? Um, but then at this point, I still had that fat necrosis and I'm like, what is happening? So literally in 2019, I was so sick, like all the time. And I could not figure out why I couldn't get well. And finally I went to my plastic surgeon and I said, look, 
we got to do something because I keep thinking you did not get it all. It's literally in the same place where the tumor was. And he goes, you know what? This was a, a doctor that listened. He goes, since we tried massaging, we've tried all of these other things, aspiration and, um, you know, getting all the fluid out. I think we should remove it. And fortunately, insurance covered that because it's all related to the original uh, lumpectomy, which is what I got. Um, that's what I opted to do because women need to know you can conserve your breasts like an automatic, you know, taking both of them off, having a double mastectomy. It actually does not it will not prevent a potential metastases. Like it could come back in your chest wall. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize, but anywho, he was really great. Um, he's like the, one of the top plastic surgeons for um, women under 40. So he was amazing. Um, and so working with him, he goes, we go into surgery. He's telling me it's probably going to be like a little size of like a little teeny tiny egg. That sucker came out like a water balloon. He was so surprised. Again, body had to be extra. It turned out that the fat necrosis had formed a, a crystallized like shell or something that had attached to an old hematoma from the original surgery. So instead of moving something that was the size of a small egg, it was more the size of a small water balloon, but there was no way to see that until he went in. So he actually went in through my scars of where I had the lumpectomy. It was very, it was painful, a lot painful. And I remember you know, looking at my scars and I'm like, okay, well, when are these going to go away? And he goes, I want you to think of this picture because I'm a visual person, right? He goes, your tumor, he's like, you've seen the movie Titanic, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you know, that iceberg looks pretty massive up top, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, I want you to think about how massive it is below what you don't see. He said, we basically did take a quadrant of your breast out because we wanted to make sure you had clear margins because my tumor was huge and they had to first contain it and then shrink it as much as possible, but then get a clear margin in the hopes of radiation taking care of any microscopic cancer cells. So it just turned out to be, everything was just way bigger and extra than I really wanted it to be. But throughout all of this time, it was, noticing, hey, you don't have any black uh, women in your, you know, your book of breasts. And I was, and he goes, oh my God, we don't. Cause I was like, I want to see what a lumpectomy is going to look like. And there were none, none. And so uh, I ended up, I'm in the book now. And it was weird because I smiled when they took the picture. I'm like, no one can see my smile, but it made me feel good that at least there'll be some representation, not enough, but at least something there of before and after, but my, I never really thought of myself as an advocate until I kept hitting barrier and issues and barriers and issues like over and over again. And I'm just like, I can't keep quiet about this. And so there just became a point where I remember the original oncologist told me I might feel a little depression at once I entered the survivorship stage. A little depression? Like, is she crazy? Like, it was a whole lot of depression. PTSD. Crying all the time. And as a very vocal person, I could not verbalize what I had just been through. Because I was just like, what just happened? Um, and so I just started writing. And that's really how I started to become known in the cancer space as an advocate. Because 
I don't sugarcoat. And I realized I was, you know, seeing a lot of people saying, oh, I'm so filled with gratitude and um, I should be happy and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, why is no one talking about rage? Why is no one talking about PTSD? Why is no one talking about grief? Like, am I the only one experiencing this? And so I just started writing about that. And that's kind of how my voice became known. Uh, and then it just kept growing and growing to the advocate that I am today, because even now I'm still having to advocate for myself, still having to advocate and learning how insurance works and, you know, knowing what terminology to use to try and get a, a test covered um, or authorized. Like it's just been a lot of, you know, new terms. And I always try and share that with others because it's hard enough getting cancer, but then when you add the barrier of being, you know, black or another person of color, and then you add the barrier of being a woman and that like, it's just so many barriers. And even the type of breast cancer I had, I experienced a lot of uh, biases. Um, I would have other providers and people where I went to, to get like support question my own diagnosis because it wasn't um, typical in the black community. And I'm just like, why are you questioning my diagnosis? Like I came here for help. And instead of seeing me as a cancer patient, he was going through so much and needs support. You're seeing me as a black cancer patient and you're questioning my own diagnoses. And I, that really upset me. And so I've just really made it a point to help others, especially in different cultures, because I know, you know, in like the black culture, there are certain things you just don't talk about. Like that one honor auntie or somebody that was like limping, that turned out to be cancer. And it's like really helping those in other cultures saying, look, it's uncomfortable, but you need to know your family history. You need to ask questions when you get that cancer diagnosis. And it's not to scare anyone, but it's to be informed because the more you know about your family history, that will directly impact the type of treatment that you get, what your post-treatment will be. Um, and that was a huge factor for me. And I was very lucky that I did have a lot of my family history um, as far as like illness and cancers. Um, but I know so many others don't, and it's uncomfortable to ask these questions, but you have to, because what I always like to tell people at the end of the day, it's your body and you matter and your voice matters. And you just keep pushing until you get the answers and trust your instincts because you know, when something's wrong. Yeah. I don't even know where to start. Like, I'm just like. You're like, there are points where it's like, I just wanted to cry, but then you'll say something and it's like so funny. Like, and I'm like, because I'm, I'm on one end, it's like, it's heartbreaking and so disheartening to know that you had to experience that. Like nobody, number one, wants a devastating diagnosis. And then to have to experience different professionals, like kind of moving you through this space in a way that's not necessarily helpful, but then understanding as you're talking or realizing as you're talking like you you're you're and, and maybe still coming to a place where you're able to speak about it like this is what happened and even able to put like the humorous 
spin on it. So there were points where it was like I was near tears, and it's like then you were like, it was like crispy bacon, and I'm like, oh God, I don't even know if I should laugh. Like I'm just like, you know, so I'm so grateful for you, you know, you know, talking about your story, and I have so many questions. I don't even know where to start. I don't know if Anissa, like you, you have something right there, but I'm just like. I want to start from the beginning and I'm just like, because when you talked about like the body changes, I'm like, these are things that can happen with anything. You know, they seem so um, um, innocuous, like, you know, like, okay, I gained weight or, you know, maybe I'm eating this or that or the other or, you know, or um, what was it you said? I'm like, you, used to, you, you were usually fit. Um, and it's just like, you know, and things happen, you know, we, we go through changes, maybe there's stress or whatever, like there are things that can happen with anything. And so, and then, but then you go to the doctor and they're like, oh, it's nothing. And then things are coming back normal. That's the scary. Right. Mm-hmm. Things are coming back normal. And it's like, I'm, I was like, well, why don't the, why didn't the blood test show anything? And then the, my other question was like, you are, you you can't be the only one, especially when we're talking about advocating for yourself. So how many other women walked in and was like, this is what's going on. It's like, well, the blood tests are normal. And you know, this is not that big of a deal. And I've seen this before. It's like at some point, and this is why trials and having people, different groups of people are important because we experience things differently. Our body will tell us stories differently. And I'm just like, nobody like bruises don't just show up unless something's wrong so the doctors have said your body's trying to tell us something we got to figure out what it is it's like at this stage in the game it's like how come they didn't you know is there not a list to say okay here's some of the things that are seemingly germane and because of that you should test for this you know Mm -hmm. yeah i know that was just the first part of your story (laughs) (laughs) It, it, I just want to say really quickly, I love how you carry carried us through your story. You're such an amazing storyteller. Um, and you inserted, like you kept us, uh, our ears open and you are a woman after my own heart. And I always tell you that um, I love you. And I, I, it was points that I'm just like, oh my God. And that's why these conversations are so important and for us to share our stories because you never know who you're helping while sh- telling what your journey has been like thus far. I'm going to shift it back to Deidre, let her ask her questions, and I'm going to ask mine thereafter. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. There was a point where we, we can go back and forth. Cause I'm, yeah. I, I, there was a point where you mentioned about like the staple gun. Like it was like the, to me, I was like funny, not funny. Right. Mm-hmm. Because it was who's had to have um, a, a biopsy. I know that sound that you're talking about. Yep. And, and I was just like, I literally almost like lost it. I was like, it's whenever I hear something that sounds like that, it's like, it takes you back to a place. Right. So when yeah. you said, like, and you know, anyway, listen, it may sound like, Oh, that's hilarious. Cause you're like, you know, I can't go to home Depot. I'm like, yeah, it's funny, but I know what she's talking about. That sounds like mm-hmm. it's triggering. Yeah. Yeah. PTSD and cancer is just really not talked about enough. Um, And I never even thought about PTSD in the cancer space until an oncologist actually used it. And she was like, you've had so much trauma to your body. And that was the first time I heard trauma used. And I was Mm -hmm. like, trauma. And then I realized, oh my God, this really is PTSD. Um, And I always thought that 
it could only be in the military, but no, when you have, you know, a major, when you're staring your mortality in the face, or you have a major illness or chronic condition, you, you can get triggered and you can Mm -hmm. get PTSD because I remember that first time I had to go back into, um, back to the cancer center, um, Mm -hmm. for like my first follow-up and, Passing the infusion room, like my heart started beating fast. I was sweating. I was just like, what is happening? Mm-hmm. And that's just not talked about enough. Yeah. yeah. I, I, glad you mentioned that. Like th- that was like, something as small as like the sound of the biopsy. I'm like, somebody, somebody said it. <laughs> somebody no. Said and it. then the fact that the providers, there were so many unsensitive yeah. providers, right? Um, And it's so disheartening to hear that. And you, t- I really wanted to talk about too and touch with you, like the mental health piece, the mental health and emotional piece of it, that I'm actually working on a project to link cancer patients to mental health services, because that is a part that is always missing, yes. right? And so how do you feel about that? Because I, it, it was later on that someone said that to you and no one thought in the beginning stages, even if, you know, when you're newly diagnosed, even to your diagnosis, honestly, that should have been an in-person conversation, not over the phone. That was very insensitive and not thinking about where, where exactly is she? They didn't know where you were at. You know, sometimes doctors just need to take a step back and think for the patient versus like, oh, I got to get you this X, Y, and Z. Make sure you create a safe space where people can receive that information and process it accordingly. Um, cause a lot of times that's just gonna, it's a world of emotions. I can only imagine. Right. Um, yeah. but really just once you process it and you take it all in and think it through and ask your <laughs> questions that your mental health should be a priority and your emotional health, because yeah. that really plays into your care, Absolutely. you know, how you cope with things, how you manage things, you know, you may need more assistance or you may need someone to counsel you and talk to you or you talk to them more so um just to get you through that and help you understand things and work together they should i feel like mental health providers should be part of your care team well you know here's what i I realized with with the mental health portion right is the oncologist their only job in their mind um, and even like your surgeons, the only job in their mind is to like make sure you don't die. And then they're like, okay, we've done that job, done. So there's no like, you know, middle person, uh, whether that be a patient navigator. I mean, even my social worker, which I thought, I'm like, why do they call them social workers, oncology social workers? Anywho, like she was very pivotal uh, in the beginning when I first got diagnosed to make sure all my paperwork was right, getting stuff approved and all of that. But then it's like there was no one else, like, that next step was missing once I finally had some time to not be in that fight or flight mode mm-hmm. and really start to process or try and process and realizing, okay, I need help. But then when I realized I needed help, then more issues kept happening with my physical health that I was like, okay, we got to, like, figure all this out. And then when I finally got to a point where I was like, okay, I definitely need some therapy. And I'm a big believer in therapy. I mean, I was in some therapy even before all the cancer business. Um, but I realized that those coping skills I learned pre-cancer were not helping me post-cancer because I'm totally different now. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I realized in trying to find um, a therapist um, or someone's looking for a psychiatrist or a psychologist is 
I had to be very specific in what I needed. Like I needed someone who understood chronic pain. Mm-hmm. I needed a, a, a therapist or a psychiatrist who wasn't just going to keep throwing medicine at me, but was going to actually give me some, some coping skills because for me, I have chronic, I'm in pain. Like right now, my pain level today is about a 10. It goes from um, six to like 14. And unfortunately today, a lot of things are flaring, um, but I don't show it. And I went, you wouldn't know it. That's because I've learned like some breathing techniques and, and all of that. But I think it's really, it's pivotal, especially if you're an adolescent and young adult, which means you're diagnosed under 40. But even like that, there's an age gap too, where you're still, you know, you're you're now too old to be young, but still too young to be older. And there's there's another gap where we still need help. And I just feel that the mental health providers really need to be trained in the chronic pain, chronic illness, um, fertility, depression, anxiety. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think that's what's kind of missing. There's like a, a missing like step. Because I agree with you. I should have, like, that should have been on, like, the next list <laughs> of, of my care team. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, something you said, when, like, when you were talking, you telling you, I can't even talk. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and thank you, though, for being here tonight when you're in pain. Yeah. Like, yeah. first and foremost. Like, I want to say, and if at any point, like, you, want to stop like we can definitely like you know stop and oh hush this is no this is important because you know I've been given tools to like try and deal with it but also I really wanted to be part of this conversation Mm -hmm. because being an advocate there there there's so many different layers to that Mm -hmm. and I often feel like the word advocate has such a heaviness to it. Like you've got to be in front of people behind a microphone, but actually there are different elements to being an advocate. And and that is something I discovered through the active treatment phase. And now in this, you know, survivorship phase where sometimes I don't always feel like I am surviving, but knowing when to ask for help or actually just mm-hmm. asking for help is so huge and it's so hard to do, but even you're advocating for yourself when you say, you know what, I'd love to like, you know, go to dinner with you, but I am, I need to rest. Like that's right. a way of advocating for yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think people, you know, just need to realize there are just different elements to it. It doesn't always mean that you have to be like so out there and front yeah. facing. Yeah, I think it's been so commercialized in this day and age. Mm-hmm. That's why folks are like, "Oh, wait a minute!" That it, it's like a job, you know. Yeah. You know, it, it's so many responsibilities, and that no, because we self advocate every day. And and the part that you were talking about saying no to a dinner date, it's self care. You're advocating for your self care, which in turn is really self love because you know yeah. what you know what I'm tired. I'm tired today. I just I can't. So I'm gonna tend to myself, you know, and. A, a true friend, someone who really cares about you is going to understand and respect that. And they might say, okay, you want some soup? I'll just drop it off and then I'll be on my way. You know what I mean? So all of that ties back in. And um, as you were talking to, I I just want to say sometimes too, like how the doctors were like, oh no, it's nothing. It's nothing. And trying to figure it out. Even the doctor, like you just said, and you you clearly told us one of the doctors was like, oh, your body's trying to say something. Quite often too, um, doctors, Doctors are late to give you results. 
sometimes like the, the, the it's like they're like they're granted they're busy many patients many results and so forth i encountered something where a doctor didn't give me my results at all and it was past 30 days no and and this was recently and i only knew it was because i went into the patient portal to look at a note a past note and i said oh i got results and you know when it's when it's red means <laughs> something is is up and i clicked i said granted it wasn't anything life threatening however it's still the principle is you're supposed to call me mm-hmm. tell me to come in or tell me the results over the phone whatever the case is because i need a treatment now it's 30 plus days and there is no treatment that if it goes untreated for a period of time, it could be life threatening. You know, it could change my lifestyle altogether. And this doctor just was like, oh, well, the machine, just, this is all so many excuses. It's all computerized, yada, yada, yada. Now, us being women that work in this field and, you know, don't please don't run that on me. Right. You just have to. And like you said, you have to. This is why it's like know what advocacy is for yourself. Before Mm -hmm. anything else, know what that means for you. It's merely standing up for yourself, standing up for your rights as a patient. Like, yes, things happen, but it is your duty and you should have due diligence to look through my chart because I'm sure you get, you know, a notification that says, oh, this patient's results aren't accurate or whatever or came back um, a particular type of way. It's, It's your job to to contact me and tell me something's up the same way that if I am coming to you to say, this is happening, that's happening. I'm seeing a bruise. I'm you as my provider trained provider, you have gone to, you know what I mean? You Mm -hmm. have due diligence to figure this out and not just sweep it away. That's why, like you said, it's so important to have providers who are listening to us, who hear us and who understands us and can put themselves in a place of, well, what if I was the patient? Because we do realize some of our doctors become our patients. In this mm-hmm. breast cancer world, the experts among experts are patients at times. Those are the ones that I really do appreciate because they look at they look at, at this disease from a different lens. Because not only are they a provider, but they're also a patient. And so when you communicate, they understand, right? Um, and, you know, sometimes it's still, it's still a barrier. It's still barriers. But I feel like as a patient, when you're coming to your provider, please just listen because you just you yeah. it, it, you don't you as a patient you don't know you don't have all the answers because you didn't take that training you didn't you don't know all the medical terms and what to really look for that's why we come to you all but it's so imperative to to have someone that's listening but also someone that's working with you to figure it out and also believes that these are not normal for <laughs> you. You know, um, to me, that was a big part of it. Um, you know, as I look at my care team, um, the only, and for me, this is important. Like the only person of color was my infusion nurse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I really started to look at that, um, you know, and again, this is all in hindsight. I wasn't thinking about this at the time, but in hindsight, I'm just like, gosh, they, you know, they don't understand that you know, that people of color, like we're mixed with so many different things. So our symptoms are going to present Mm -hmm. differently. And so to not be believed, but I just knew that I had to keep pushing and that can be so hard to do and it's draining, but it's like at the end of the day, you matter. And, 
if no one else is going to fight for you, then you got to fight for yourself and mm-hmm. like really push to get those answers because you deserve them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember I thought like the audacity of that coordinator that questioned you about the diagnosis. Like, are you sure? What do you mean? Am I sure? Right. Like, I, I was upset and you were sharing the story and I was just I, like, what? I was the first like, time she shared it, I was just so upset. I'm like, how? And, you know, this was before. So I'm just like, I'm still, I'm, I'm mad just thinking about it. Like, how dare you? Right. Yeah. As, if she, as if she didn't know her own body. It's oh, if she didn't I, go through all the things. It's, 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 I don't even know, reminiscent, but reminiscent implies that it's over, but it's, it's very closely um, it's very similar or it, it's not even, it's the same as when women are questioned about their pain level yes. um, at maternity and child health space. This is why we have so many women who are uh, black women who are dying because they're, are you sure? It's this question as if I don't know. And so the point where you were saying um, you were reading up on, you know, other things that could help to address because clearly you're allergic or something is not working with all the, the medication you're being, you've been giving post lumpectomy. It's like, you know, then you had to like educate yourself to, to be able to talk about it and say, okay, maybe this is what's, you know, what's, what, what's best for me. And so it's like, we have to do, I think anybody should educate themselves because if you you know not only do you have to work with a clinician whether it's an allopathic you know conventional medicine doctor or naturopathic working with someone who knows you or at least got to know your body so that they can give you the best care plan but also having the information yourself so that you're not solely reliant on another person so knowing your own body as well mm-hmm. so there's these pieces that have to come together in order for there to be like optimal health care, you know, like, you know, working with somebody who knows you and then you also educating yourself on what's going on with you so that you can even express yourself in the way that says, okay, this is what I'm noticing with me. And, and you kind of get on this plane where you're speaking the same language. Cause we know like, you know, it, depending on what field, you know, there's legalese, there's medicalese, you know, and everybody's got their own language. And so you have to, like, you know, kind of meet on that middle ground so we, we, we all know what one another's saying. Because how many times have you been have you sat on the exam table and it becomes womp 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 <laughs> and it's like in one ear and out the other and it's like I have no idea like what you just said. You know, regardless of how much education you have because once you're sitting there and then something yep. happens or something is said and that fear sets in, everything becomes a foreign language. Exactly. You know, like um, another way that um, I started advocating for myself, like in those kind of situations is, A, when it's like a big appointment, I do not go alone. Mm -hmm. Um, I I was able to bring my mother. um, But even if for those who don't have someone to go with them, um, there are a lot of apps that you can use to like record the appointment. And so some doctors get like weirded out by that, but all you have to do is say, look at the end of this appointment, can you just give me a recap of what we just discussed and what my next steps are so I can have it. And so I can share it with my, my family, you know, cause no one can be with me here today, but also too, every time I went to one of my appointments and maybe it's just because I'm just naturally a very organized person I always went in with like my questions like typed out like, yeah, I could have put it on my phone, but I was like, it helped me to like hold up that sheet of paper and I'd ask these questions. And sometimes, 
you have such a limited amount of time with that provider or specialist. So I always have like my top five, but like the top two to three, I'm not leaving until I get those answers, mm-hmm. you know, like, so it's always like putting like your most urgent things because you have that short window with them, which sucks. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other mess, right? But yeah. at least you can yeah, get sure. like the the major questions that you had and the rest can go through a portal or, or talk to the PA or nurse. But those are some other ways like I really uh, armed myself to feel a little more uh, empowered and a little more in control of the situation. Even though a lot of it was outside of my control, but at least knowing that I had questions or even if I didn't necessarily know what to ask, I just had something written down just saying, can you just explain that to me again? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, there was another piece that I wanted to bring and I'm, I am going backwards because like I said, after your story, I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm so excited and thrilled by you telling the story because you're an amazing storyteller. And at the same time, there's some parts that are just like infuriating. And I'm just like, the part about active treatment, because it's not the first time that I've heard that. Like, you know, there's there's this attention. And even when it comes to policy, we have like legislation and the way that the health system is set up where those who are in active treatment, the attention is there because mm-hmm. move them from active treatment to this idea of survivorship. But then once they're not on active treatment, it's like, okay, just like you said, it's like, all right, well, yeah, I did this. And so we did what we were supposed to do. You know, I did my job, you know, like moving on some sort of conveyor belt to the next person, but then there is not a next person. So then it, it goes to say, like, there should be some, like, if you are an oncologist, it should be, you know not just like I'm just treating the disease, but like what happens after, or you are the resource to lead the patient to what is supposed to happen after, you know, and and what the team now needs to transition to, because it seems like there's not, the team is going to shift as you move through your journey. Right. So the, 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 each clinician on the team needs to know who the next person is afterwards. You know, okay, so if you are just the oncologist and I'm here to, you know, give you the regimen for chemo and da-da-da-da-da, but know what the side effects are. And when you come back and say, like, this is how I'm feeling, okay, you should know who the next person to ping to bring them in on the team so that the patient can move through. Because the the, the truth the truth is, and I, and I don't like using the word, but I know that's the word that is used, that survivorship. When we're surviving, we're just doing enough to live. It needs to be thriving. Yeah, we want that quality right. of life, you know? Right. Like every, every patient, every person that has either had a cancer diagnosis or a chronic illness of some sort, like we all deserve to have Quality, good of quality of life. Yeah. And that to me is missing um, in a lot of these conversations with um, providers. Um, they're, they're not thinking about after. Um, and, and yeah, we're not getting enough attention. Um, you know, like even the, the grants uh, and financial help is all mm-hmm. when you're in active treatment. And if anything, I- it's become more expensive you know, surviving and no one really talks about that because I'm like, now I have a whole other slew of health issues that I never had before stemming from this. And they're just as expensive with imaging and procedures. And I was like, 
I, you know, just when I felt like I was digging myself out of a hole, that financial toxicity pulls me right back under mm-hmm. because yeah. surviving is expensive. There's follow up. Like, look what happened afterwards. Okay, the lumpectomy, but then they had to pull out the iceberg because there was still some residual there and it attached to something else and then becomes a whole different issue to to deal with. And so, like, when we talk about like survivorship, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily equate to quality of life. Right. It's it's like, okay, so it's great we have survivors. Okay, but what's the quality of life? So I like how you I think I don't know if we were talking about this before we got on camera off. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> about the, the positive toxic you said I think you did say like where's the rage? And it's like it's mm-hmm. okay to like to sit with these feelings. And there's an awesome podcast which I'll share uh, by Chief Uya where he's talking about like anger. Um, and also another one where he's talking about like where we have to sit with our feelings, you know, yes. sit, sit with those things. It's okay to have them, um, but we don't want them to like take over and then it changes our brain. Mm-hmm. It changes, you know, how we move and then we're not able to like grow and, and evolve uh, emotions, you know? <clears throat> So it's okay. Like this, I'm upset about this, and that you wrote about it. Like this is what's going on, you know. Instead of the I'm so grateful, and it's not to say that you know people aren't, but you know everything doesn't have to be like in this positive space. It's like this is what I experienced. Like, and then you were you're even able to give your you know at least deliver your story in such a humorous and positive way. But it's like no, but it wasn't all rainbows. It's not all peaches and cream, right? Right. My skin was burning off under my arm. It felt like crispy bacon. I was, you know, you, you, what movies you were reminded of. And I, was, I know that movie. That is also my favorite part. Um, like, I was just like, this isn't, yes, it's okay to be able to tell the story um, in all parts of it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and still be grateful. Like, yes, I'm, I was angry and it was rage, but I'm grateful. Yes, I'm here. But now it's like, how can we thrive? How can we, you know, uh, help women and, and patients and, and people who have have survived breast cancer to thrive and have, you know, a high, a high or optimized, you know, quality of life? Yeah. yeah. Just, as you're talking, I'm like, yeah, like survivorship is great because you're you're still here. But then it's like surviving is just you know existing you know to stay alive like you want to be thriving you want to because like you said like there's things that's taking you like okay now i have this financial hole and then you still got people questioning you like oh you sure you got diabetes what you mean you am i sure i can read like right i mean you know like i have a permanent handicap sign like do i look like i would have a permanent handicap sign and i've actually had people yell at me you know because i come out and, and they're like, why are you there? You shouldn't be there. And I'm just like, you know, and I think, right. I know. I think about those with like the invisible illness, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I mean, I never thought I would end up with a permanent handicap sign because of, you know, permanent damage from the toxic treatment. And it, it's been, I mean, it's like, I have to learn, I have to learn so many things in a different way or I even walk differently like I don't have that long stride I used to I have to actually kind of do kind of short quick steps because the chemo induced peripheral neuropathy in my um, feet and also in my hands like I have to be really aware of my balance and where that next foot is going Um, you know it's so many things it's just really complicated so it's important like as you said like 
to feel all the feels. Like you don't dismiss your feelings. You do not always have to feel grateful, but you need to kind of sit with it for a little bit and then release, you know, whatever that like negativity or whatever that's bringing you down. But you have every right to feel whatever it is you want to feel at that given moment. But don't, as you said, like let it pull you completely under and recognize when you do need help or when you need, you know, more support of, you know, with others who have been through something similar and you find that. And I mean, look at how I'm connecting with y'all, you know, thank goodness for the internet. I can't imagine going through this without technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think too, like, I think we just have to give ourselves grace to and permission to just feel and like, and, and say, you know, let, let me sit with this. And mm-hmm. I think too, um, you had touched on it too. The, the surgeons or the doctors are at a point where it's, we just want to keep you alive. And once they do that and, 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 you know, they are accomplished, like, oh, she's alive. She's good. That's it. But that aftercare is so, so imperative. Right. And I think systematically the right kind of conversation, not even the right kind, the conversations altogether need to be reformed. Yes. Right. You from, from, from the time of diagnosis onward. Right. Those follow ups have to look different. Those touch points have to look different because sometimes they just don't even exist. Right. Mm-hmm. They're not. Once you're through, they're like, OK, you're on your own. And that financial toxicity is very, very serious because a lot of my patients and, fo- and people that I am connecting with and, you know, that I work with are saying like, you know, there, there's so many other things after treatment. And you're absolutely right, Megzi, about the grants and all of those things. predominantly only offered to folks who are in treatment and not thinking about, well, what about afterwards? What about housing? What about childcare? Or what about, you know, just being able to eat every day, right? All those things, Uh, transportation, because I do have to go back to my follow-up and for all the issues that I didn't have to do that I now have because of the treatment, how do I get to these appointments? What if I live in one county and the, the specialist is in a whole nother county, Right. Right, or even losing your career, right? Yeah, exactly. Like it, you know, it really scares me now because I'm like, oh my god, I have to always have insurance. Like you know, before all that, it's like, oh, I'll be fine. I don't need to like really keep that appointment. Mm-hmm. Now I'm, I have to be very vigilant mm-hmm. about it. And so, just that stress, especially for those who were really um, impacted, like with chemo brain. I mean, chemo brain really did rock me very hard. Uh, and it's such a, it sounds like such a nice, you know, funny term, chemo brain, but it's actually really debilitating um, and it's scary. It's almost like a, a form of dementia. Um, it's like an injury to your brain because of all that toxic treatment that your memory, your long-term, uh, no, your short-term memory really goes. Like my long-term memory was kind of fine, but that's ultimately why I ended up changing careers because I couldn't remember how to do things that I had like, you know, been doing my whole career. And I was, and that was devastating. And so I think we can't underestimate, yes, we're here, but there's also been a lot of loss along the way. Mm-hmm. And it's, you have to really work toward trying to find yourself again, what you can do, what you're limited to do. Um, it, it, that's a long and rocky road sometimes. And I don't think enough people talk about that part either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think it's time to just have those real conversations. Everything is not going to always be a lot of time people share the polished part, right? It's all yeah. polished and is done and not really tell what the journey really looks like, right? And and I get it to each is his own and sometimes people that's a, a sacred journey and people don't want to share it. But for those who do, let's have those real conversations and educate one another, right? Um and not only as a community but also with the healthcare providers and professionals. Most importantly, those people, like clinical trial professionals, yeah. the doctors, the nurses, the navigators, because these conversations need to be had for the simple fact that that's how the change is going to happen. Right. So if our doctors are talking because our doctors are listening, then they'll take it back to the higher ups and then say, we need to change some the system. Right. We need to change how the, these protocols are. Like if our patient is diagnosed, what are these steps and who do who what's missing? Mm-hmm. What's the gap that we need to fill? What do we need to incorporate? What other professionals and specialists need to be here? And then after our patient is treated, how do we make sure that the aftercare is intact and in place where they are supported? You know, and I do understand like funding and all these other things. But if you are if your goal is to uh, have someone stay alive, well, live through that then your goal should also be that they stay alive and thrive during that time, like Deidre was saying. Because if you don't have a good mental health and emotional health, um, if you don't have good mental and emotional health, you will develop other sicknesses, right? Yeah. And you're yeah. gonna, it's going to just come back all around. So if it's not one thing, it'll be another. And we know stress and worry can cause right. all kinds of things Press that we're doing it to just re- to, to come up. So... Do we want reoccurrence? No, we do not. Do we want people to come back in here and have this revolving door? No, you want people to have, you know, um, quality, like you said, a quality life. But how, what are we doing in this in this process along their journey to help them attain that and sustain it? You know, and the real thing, like that, the cortisol is nothing to play. Cortisol, like high levels of cortisol can cause infertility it can cause cognitive dysfunction because your body is you know constantly in that fight or flight mode um it's it's not a good place to be for anybody whether you have a chronic diagnosis or acute diagnosis it, it stress is not good so when you add that on top of having to deal with something like cancer any type you know like like and then we think about like, you know, how does that affect recurrence, you know? Right. I mean, and, and you know, a, another element, I mean, like, I mean, we could talk about this for hours is I also think about those, you know, who are transgender or who, you know, are part of the LGBTQIA plus community, um, those where English is not their first language. Like, I, I'm always thinking, God, if I had such a hard time, imagine you know, if I'm even further, you know, marginalized, Mm -hmm. what that is like. And so, you know, the reason why I talk about my story so openly is because, A, I do not have a physical legacy. I'm an only child. So, like, it ends with me. And so this is my way of leaving a digital legacy and hopefully will help others, you know, empower themselves and really make an impact and remind themselves that no matter what your, you know, how you identify, whatever that you deserve to be seen, heard and believed and you matter. You know, as you're talking about your journey, there was something that I meant to bring up before Um, because like, yes, 
and, and we know like breast cancer can affect men as well, but overwhelmingly the people who suffer from breast cancer are women. And the fact that um, when you went to the, the second oncologist, I think the part where you shared that when you said he saw me and, and it was something that, that like he saw you, but I, I, I also was very, I don't even know the, the word to use, but the fact that he also, he saw you as a woman. Yeah. Was so key. Have to think the outside the box. About, you know, having to, to even go near your fertility. Like, yes, you said later, like it turns out that you, you had endometriosis, you said. And so. They, yeah. And then um, but, yeah, I had to take uterus. Right. But the fact that he even was like, you know, I don't even want to go here because it touches your fertility. Because you, you're saying like, I don't have legacy. That there's no physical legacy. But he even he had the force thought to think like, yes. you know, like this is a and that is key. Yeah, that is key because how many times, um, you know, are we we you know I have I have lady parts. You know, I'm a woman, so I go to the doctor and like you know, especially when you're going to the doctor that deals with our gyno, our womb, you know, womb health. And it's like, you know, they deal with it all day, every day. So sometimes there's like this, not even sometimes, there's like this impersonalness to it. Or it's like, you know, we're just in a conveyor, but all right, next patient, da, da, da. But the fact that he sat and was like, I don't want to do this. And he teared up and it's like, you know, we'll have to, you know, basically, you know, take away your fertility. Regardless, because you didn't know at the time what, you know, the other thing that was happening. But like, we have to take away your fertility. And like just even having reverence for that, like what our bodies as women are supposed yes. to do. come here with that capacity, but not all of us are able to do it. And even him just like, I don't even want to do this. Like, but we, this is the only thing else that I know how to try, you know? Yeah. And, and, and no, it didn't work, but even just, you know, talking about it and bringing it up and acknowledging that piece that part, yeah. Yes, that's a compassionate provider. Compassion yeah. is key in this space that we are in. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but I, and that makes me sad that it's that's so rare. Like I was surprised, and that made me sad that I was surprised that he cared, that he had that foresight. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he's a male doctor, right? <laughs> right. And he was really tall too. Um, <laughs> But, like, really, you know, like, just being seen for all that you are as that patient in that moment and coming in prepared, like, he had read my chart. Like, that is something, too. And I think we really can't, you know, state that enough that we really need our doctors. Like, why are we always telling 10 million people why we're here? And then they come in. So why are you here? And I'm just well, like. Can I don't talk to each other. <laughs> you right. don't need to didn't you read the chart? Especially if you're a specialist. I can't. I've seen you because you're a specialist. So therefore, if someone referred me, so all my information you should already have. And before this appointment, usually, typically, when I used to uh, run in the office, I practice, the doctors the night before would go through all their patients' charts the day before to be prepared the next day. And if you had an add-on, they would skim it through and like, okay, check, check. Okay, got it. I'm I'm wondering because I'm I'm you know, I'm not in that space anymore. I'm like, what happened? Mm-hmm. Now we have EMRs and 
it should be easier to go through someone's chart, right? Because if the if the institutions are connected, you can see what I did here in downstate New York versus upstate New York or wherever, because the systems are talking, right? Or if you're in a Mount Sinai and you, and you go to like NYU, if the systems are the same, they share the 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 um the record. But even even if if it's not like a major you know hospital or cancer center, I'm always thinking about those in the rural areas where they don't have like they're seeing a general oncologist not a specialized oncologist for their particular cancer and how it shouldn't always be on the patient to have to know what to ask or what steps to take Mm -hmm. like you know and that that's something that just really it weighs on me um as I think about that and I'm really starting to understand how lucky I was to be in a big city, but even how difficult that was. So then it's like, I'm always thinking about like, you know, gosh, there were barriers there and you're, and you're well-educated and you're, you know, you're outspoken. So yeah. What is happening in our underrepresented community? Yeah. Right. And then it goes back because like the mom and pop clinics, right. I, we, yes, we want that. And that's an expectation and the good ones will take go the extra mile, right. The ones that are diligent and compassionate and, are in it for the people, right? Mm-hmm. But also we have to think too, like, and like you said, this conversation can go on because then you got to think about funding, right? Right. Like people have funding to have enough providers where they where they they can then have the capacity to do that. Sometimes it's just so busy due to the fact that we're sitting in an underrepresented, underserved community and everyone comes here. Um, everyone, if they're low income, if they're... Um, not documented, whatever the case is, everyone in this area, in this neighborhood comes to this doctor and this practice only has two doctors. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Plus mm-hmm. all these things to consider, right? Again, systematic change is yeah. what we need and we need it to funnel through, not just in the city, but in our neighborhoods outside the city and the ones that are not properly served because Everyone deserves quality care. Everyone deserves access to care. Yes. Um, And deserves their voices to be heard and for them to be seen. And if there are barriers such as language or um, transportation, whatever the case is, we need things in place that are dependable. Because accessoride is there, but doesn't mean it's always dependable, right? Sometimes they mess up, you know. I've, I've seen it happen. And I'm like, and you know. And now doctor's offices are charging folks. I don't understand how you charge somebody on Medicaid for not showing up if the ride got canceled. Anyway, that's a whole nother thing. (laughs) But it's, it's, it's bigger, right? It's a bigger picture. But I think having the conversations like we are having, having bi-directional conversations with the providers and healthcare professionals, when we're sitting on advisory boards and you're talking to like these top head, you know, the head honchos, bringing up all these things as patient advocates, as like um, leadership is so imperative because you are the voices of the people. Because if the people cannot be there, then you are able to voice what's happening in the community, what's happening to them in healthcare so that change can happen. And you fight that fight for them, right? Um, Right. I mean, it's that lived lived experience. experience. And, And also too, like, you know, telling a compelling you know story to those decision makers who are you know often white men Mm -hmm. um and being able to talk about these things in a in a way that will actually like really have impact for them and 
and saying like, these are the changes you need to make. And it's like, we're tired of all this talk, talk, talk. Let's get some action. Right. Yeah. A plan of action is next. Like, yes, we're going to have the conversations, but now what are the next steps? It's yeah. called to action. Put your money where your mouth is and then let's do this because people are in place. Like people are in place. We are in, look, we're three, we're out of the, out of the many three already, right. Um, who are in place and want to, want to contribute to that and are trying to do the best we can in our lanes. Right. And it's just, we, we have to make them listen, right. Make them listen and hold, hold them accountable. Yeah. And also ourselves as people, as patients as well. Um, because I think, Meg, you, you mentioned, you know, sometimes a patient can't do it all. And that is so true. But also, I've learned through my own experience that doctors are humans and they're going to make mistakes. So I have to be on on point with my care because if he slips up or she slips up, I'm on point. I got to I'll be my own backup because sometimes things happen and not to end. Sometimes things happen that shouldn't happen. And so or I'm they always, slip up. I want to be. Yeah, or, in that yeah they slip up and you're like, wait a minute, because. <laughs> That that most recent experience, like it was, it was the doc. <laughs> the doctor tried to dismiss me. My my daughter was with me, and she was like, she looked over. She was like, she had to look on her face, like she doesn't know that you know. And I let her finish, but I'm like, you're not gonna dismiss me. So can you explain to me what your protocols are for results in X, Y, and Z? She was stuck. She couldn't tell me. She fumbled up her words, and I. I I said, no, like I need to know because I it's not only for me, but for other patients who have more serious issues. What would happen if they didn't get their results in a timely manner? It could be life altering, you know, and so we have to hold them accountable, um, you know, as much as we hold ourselves. But it's better. I always feel let's do our homework. Let's make sure that we got us. If no one else does have our best interest, we're going to have our best interest because that makes us better self-advocates. And if yeah. you can't do it as a provider, I'm going to find a second opinion to find someone who can, right? Because at the end of the day, it's it's our lives. It's our lives. And, and if you lose me as a patient, I'm just a patient to you. But my loved ones are going to really, are really the ones who are going to lose and myself. So yeah, I'm going to do my due diligence to stay on top of my health and my care. And you have to do the same as my provider because yeah. I'm coming to you for treatment. You're supposed to be the expert, like right, right. So you had the training, the years of training for this, and so yeah, and you're still gonna build my insurance for me. There doesn't mean you can slack off now, you know? right? And, and right. I think a lot of what we're saying, like, like when you talked about, like, what are people in rural areas going through? Like, I, you know, I'm I came from like where you where you are in Nishka, like you know, I'm still going back and forth sometimes between like the north and the south, but now I'm you know in the south. And down here, like, that is a real thing, like, the, the rural areas. And, of course, there's places up north, like Pennsylvania, like, there's rural areas. And it's, like, people who are not in these big cities, it's, like, where are they going? Like, I had a client once, um, I was working with a group, and, and the their patient advocacy group was, like, you know, some they were explaining some of the things that they experienced. And it's, like, why can't they provide transportation for people who are you know, going to clinical trials or like provide the things that are needed, the pieces needed for people to be able to have greater access to clinical trials or, or care, you know, like for people in rural areas, maybe they are seeing a specialist, but like, what does it take for them to go see that specialist? How far do they have to drive? Is it like 
whole trip they have to plan around, you know, when they go see the specialist. And so therefore they're now spending more money than just like whatever the costs are to go see the specialist. If they even have insurance to pay for it because the, the, the gap, the coverage is real. Yeah, we have the Affordable Care Act, but not all states. And I think there are 11 in the state that I'm in right now is one of them. Um, they have not expanded Medicaid, for example, um, you know, and you have people who are in that Medicaid coverage gap as meaning they don't make enough. Um, they make too much to afford um, Medicaid or to be eligible for Medicaid, but they don't make enough to afford the private plans that are on the healthcare marketplace. Right. It's, it's insane. Like, right now. You know, I think it was November 1st, open enrollment for the healthcare marketplace. And I have that, you know, because my life, my life has changed and I had to go to the, the marketplace. It's expensive. It is. It's expensive. And it's like, it, I was just like. Uh, yeah, I know. Right? Like, <laughs> I did it. Me too. I did the it's same a big thing. Chunk I was like, of yeah, it's a big chunk of change. It is. Yeah. It's like, wow. And, and then not even everything is covered or like the providers right. that you That's are used right. to going to, they're not under that. Under. So it it really becomes very convoluted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, one thing I would like as to what Deidre was saying too, it'd be really good if in those rural areas or even a hospital that's linked to a, a practice that's in the area, for those navigators, or rather be a nurse navigator or a patient navigator, to be to have knowledge of the the CBOs that are in the area that provide some resources to get patients from their appointments or whatever whatever the barrier is that they have those resources to share with the patient too, because sometimes they may not have it. The institution, the larger hospitals may not have it, but another, but a, a, you know, community-based business might, I mean, organization may, and you're, the patient is missing out on things that they need because those who are working in the hospital just don't have knowledge of it. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's something that they could do too, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, There was something else. I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, that's um, or maybe not. It's more just like, I guess, a recap. I'm like, I think like what you shared was key. Like, so we talk about advocating for yourself and all, all, all the time, right? But it's more than just the clinical space. It's advocating for yourself even outside of that clinical setting, whether it be at work, whether mm-hmm. it be family, whether it be like how to navigate, like you know, your way um, to having a thriving and high quality of life, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's necessary. And um, yeah, like I just, yeah, like it's, it's so necessary. And so it just goes to show like there is life after active treatment, but the goal is to make it, you know, the best life. You right. Know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Megs, for sharing your story. Um, I think I think it was so crucial that we had that because, you know, I just kind of felt like our conversation was not complete without, you know, real life, you know, and true life story. Like, this is what happened to me and this is how I move through it. Um, before we close out, I just have one question, you know, because 
because we kind of, I feel like, you know, with all the things that we talked about, like a lot of things were answered. But I, w- I do have like one question, you know, what is one thing you want other, I don't want to say other um, post-treatment and, and moving toward thriving and, and high quality of life folks to know? You know, I, I think it would be um, to continue to ask for help. And if, you know, that particular doctor is not hearing you, get a, a second opinion. Um, because I, I've realized just how important that is, even in the survivorship space, to still have doctors who will listen and recognize that, okay, this is stemming from your toxic treatments and we need to think about you in a different way. So it's really about, you know, it's hard and you're not hurting the doctor's feelings if you're getting a second opinion. Um, But to make sure that you really just monitor your health and any new like symptoms or, or side effects that you haven't experienced before, write it down because you will forget. And then when you ultimately end up at your doctor's appointment, you're not going to remember how that one pain or whatever felt five weeks ago. So I'm a big believer of trying to find a doctor who hears you, getting that second opinion if needed, but also making sure you write down whatever it is that you're feeling and kind of track it. So that way, when you go to the doctor, because it can be very overwhelming once you get there, and you're like, finally, I'm here. And then you totally forget about everything that had happened before you got to this point. But then you have that information because you've been tracking it. And I've found that to be really pivotal, um, even in my care with some other uh, health issues, including my back, because I tracked it from when that first pain started, how it was dismissed and how it continued. So I was able to show like this, something is really wrong. um, And what are you going to do? Yeah, give things. You just, I was going to say, I lied. I have another question. But you know what? I realized, like, you know what? It, I think it's, like, a good um, segue for another show. Because as you were talking about, like, you know, having the providers talk about how we address the medicine or the poison that was put inside you. Because we don't talk enough, like, chemotherapy is a chemical, you know? And so it's, like, then... Are what are you know, or how many, or are there even doctors who are um, connecting with people who might be natural paths? Because it's like you don't have anything else because you're only looking in, in this in this world where the pharmaceutical industry gives you all the drugs to address. Have you thought mm-hmm. about you know? Has the doctor, the clinician, thought about okay, how do we maybe incorporate some you know? Uh, naturopathic medicine or holistic medicine or uh, uh, regimens or treatments that may help because everything that the pharmaceutical industry has developed for XYZ is not working. So what do we do? It doesn't have to stop at, okay, well, there's no pharmaceutical. Like They're like, well, we don't have anything. There's got to be something. So how do we incorporate that? You know, and where where can we, you know, lead patients, okay, here's something else you can try so that you don't feel like you're just like, well, well, what else am I supposed to do? I think, you know, like it depends on what you have. Like what, what is the cancer? What type of cancer? Like there's so much to consider, but I do think that you can have some, like I know for me, the chemo really did 
ultimately saved my life as much as it like took a lot out. That is why I'm still here. And I'm here six years later and Mm -hmm. I have, you know, I'm not no medication, um, which is scary, but that's because I've surgically and, you know, done absolutely everything I can do and the treatments as toxic as they were, but, uh, you know, with other like side effects that I've had or permanent damage, I have realized, hey, you know what, maybe that acupuncture actually might work or maybe medically, you know, I'm not going to find something, but maybe this, you know, other natural path might help me help reduce the stress so I can at least clear my mind so I can focus on, you know, other next steps. So I think there's a way for, you know, those to work together, but it is definitely um, an individual Thing and making sure even if you do decide to do something natural path that you do communicate with you know your your western doctor right because it can be like okay well here's what you know I, here's what i have in my arsenal as for the next a possible team member to add as you're going mm-hmm. here's what we can you know add and then you can make that decision if it's best for you because then you're it's not like okay we've reached the end of the road okay here's something else we can try you know so that you know there's there's something so yeah but yeah, yeah it's not giving up on yourself right. i guess that would be another thing <laughs> i guess i could add a lot of things um <laughs> that i want people to know but in the survivorship stage it is hard and i think that's what i want people who have not been through it yet to know that it can be hard but again not everybody heals the same way and that's important to acknowledge and if you are you know struggling in that survivorship know that you're not alone um there are others and at the end of the day you have to remind yourself that you deserve to have an improved quality of life and to do your research and do your part to try and make it happen and be heard and believed yeah well said okay um thank you so much warrior megzi for joining us on true health live um even through pain level 10 thank you Mm -hmm. so much for being here thank you we love having you this was great thank you this was i i really needed this i didn't realize how much i needed this i I love talking (laughs) with you know other brilliant people and uh this was really yeah, it was helpful for me as well to see how far I've come along mm-hmm. and able to talk through pain. <laughs> <laughs> like, what a beautiful perspective. <laughs> yeah, it's important for people to know, like, this is a real, it's a real thing. So, like, it's not all, you know, like, when you see people talking and they're advocates, like, you're, they're probably, like, in pain right now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a real thing, like people experience pain, you know, and, and, and it's something that has to be addressed in, in whatever way we can, you know, whether it's like addressing the pain symptoms themselves. Okay. Or how do we make it better for you? How do we take something off your plate so that you, you know, kind of experience it and, and move through whatever the process it is to get to where it's a lower level or, or none at all. So, yeah. Give thanks. I'm glad. I'm glad this was helpful for you because it was definitely. Yeah. Helpful. I think you helped us more than. As always, for any of you who are, you know, interested in showing up on True Health Live, you can just email us at truehealthlive at gmail.com. 
Um, you can always uh, put comments. Definitely put comments for those of you who are watching on YouTube. Put some comments in the, the description box, the comment box, or whatever they call it. Um, and I'll also, anything that we share here, I'll put them in the description box. Um, I think I did talk about a podcast, so I'll put the link to the Chief Yuya podcast in there. And Megzi, you did say something, and I was like, I wonder if we, can we get, um, I can look it up. Like, as you mentioned, chemo brain. And I was like, okay, that might be helpful for people to know, like, the definition. Like, thank you for describing it. So just to, just as a reminder, I'll put that in the chat as well. Um, and um, if there's anything else that you want to share that um, I can put in the description box, just let me know, and we'll put it in there. But thank you, all of you, for listening and watching. Make sure you leave a review. If you're on YouTube or Facebook, like, share, and subscribe, and tell your friends, tell everybody. So we are out of here, um, and we will see you in the forward. Give thanks, everyone. <laughs> Thank you for joining us here at True Health Live. Remember to like, save, share, and subscribe. Leave a comment and send an email if there's a topic if you want to discuss. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at True Health Live. You can also listen on DeidreSully.com. If there's a topic you'd like to discuss or hear, you can send an email to TrueHealthLive at gmail.com. See you next time.